635, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. This is one of those weekends for everybody who says there's nothing to do in Milwaukee. Man, if you couldn't find something to do this weekend, you're just absolutely not trying. Besides the Brewers being home, this is one of those weekends where you had the South Shore Water Frolics going on. You had Port Washington Fish Day, which I hear was absolutely tremendous. You had Bastille Day downtown. You had Gathering of the Green out in Mequon. And all sorts. Cedarburg had their Maxwell Street Days. And it was all sorts of different things scattered around the area. That's just a very short list. As a matter of fact, the truth is, in summer, in southeastern Wisconsin, we are almost overscheduled. There's just too darn much stuff going on, but a lot of fun. Hope you got out and enjoyed um, the tremendous weekend. I know some rain at the late Saturday night, but it was over by yesterday. And, um, again, I'm glad to see the floodwaters receding. I know the folks down in Burlington have had a long, long couple of days. All right, just an observation to start it off. I would have thought it would have been impossible because over the last several months, we have had one story after another about what I would call airlines behaving badly. You know, taking a rules-are-rules approach and tossing people off of planes or just acting in an irrational sort of fashion, making, I think, and the truth of the matter is, airline travel as it stands is sort of a struggle, you know, and it's, it's nobody's fault. But they've cut back on the number of flights. When you get to the airport, you've got to go through the TSA stuff, and that's a strenuous and a stressful type of thing. I understand that. The planes are always crammed full of people. Um, You just sort of hope that, gosh, I I hope I can get from my destination where I'm going, where I'm coming from to where I'm going. I hope my baggage gets there. I hope there's not a screaming baby that throws up, doesn't throw up on me, you know, on the plane. All those different types of things. That's what you hope for. And, again, so some of these instances we've had where the flight attendants have been behaving badly, you you say, oh, I just hate those different airlines. Conservative commentator Ann Coulter. And Ann Coulter is a provocateur. I, I always thought... That, that the stuff she does is a shtick, you know, just, and there's and, and there's people on the left, lots of people on the left that do it, too. You know, take intentionally provocative opinions in order to generate a, a response. And I, I kind of get it. So when I read a lot of columnists or people that write for The New York Times, it's the same sort of thing. I don't think they're necessarily really being serious. I'm just assuming, all right, they're just trying to get a response. It's what they do. You see that on a lot of the talking heads. And Ann Coulter, in my opinion, has always done that on the right. She says stuff to try to generate a response. Now, my friend and former colleague, Charlie Sykes, kind of believed that, no, she wasn't just being a provocateur. He kind of thought that she was just nuts. I, I don't know what the, what the truth is one way or the other. But Ann Coulter is on a Delta flight the other day, and she takes to Twitter to bash um, Delta Airlines, and it's kind of an interesting dynamic. She gets on this Delta flight, and um, she had, the way it works with Delta, I mean, some airlines, like, of course, Southwest, you, you don't reserve a seat. You just, you reserve, you know, essentially a place in line, you can pay extra to get up front, and you get on, you know, you get on and, you know, whatever seats are open, you take. Delta allows you to pay extra to reserve certain seats. And there's a couple aisles, apparently, I haven't flown Delta in ages, but there's a couple aisles on Delta where you get three inches extra legroom. And it costs 30 bucks more, but you get three inches of extra legroom. So Ann Coulter is on a flight um, the other day, and she has apparently early on, she reserves a window seat in this particular row. 
within 24 hours of her flight, she changes from the reserved window seat to an aisle seat, the seat on the aisle, in the same row. She does that within 24 hours of the departure of the plane. So she gets on the plane, she gets to the row in question, and she sits down in the aisle seat. Well, apparently something had happened, and there was some confusion over whether or not when she made the change from the window to the aisle seat, the airline actually got it. So somebody else comes on thinking that they have the aisle seat. So this dispute is about an aisle seat versus a window seat in the same row. So Delta moves Ann Coulter apparently from the aisle seat to the window seat that she originally reserved. And she has a hissy fit about the airline now saying that she can't have the aisle seat that she changed to like 24 hours earlier. So she takes to Twitter, um, you know, sending different things, um, attacking Delta. Go, ah, this is absolutely ridiculous. Um, you know, the Delta employee's not honorable, not trustworthy. She's taking pictures of this, and then she goes on Twitter. Well, normally the airlines take this. Delta decides to respond. Delta says, we're sorry you did not receive the preferred seat you paid for, and we will refund your $30. Additionally, your insults about our other customers' employees are unacceptable and unnecessary. And again, CNBC is now reporting that this entire dispute that set her off was, again, about moving from an aisle seat to a window seat in the same row. And Delta just decided not to take it. They said, okay, we're going to give you your $30 back, but it's not like you were inconvenienced. And, of course, you know, after they responded, what's happening is all these people are saying, oh, thanks for the reply. This is amazing. Thank you, Delta. Um, essentially, Delta and Coulter has done what I thought it would have been almost impossible to do in the summer of 2017, and that is um, people now defend an airline. And I would defend an airline, too, in this situation. All right, you know, you've reserved a particular seat. I, I get it, but it's not like they moved her to the back and stuck her next to a lavatory. Apparently, she wanted the window. She changed it the last minute to the aisle. Somehow, stuff got confused, so they moved her back to the window. Oh, the horrors. This is, as Gene Miller was just saying, the ultimate, the ultimate first world problem. So, Ann Coulter... We start off the program. She gets credit. She has done what I thought would be impossible, made people want to stand up for the airlines. Delta One and Coulter Zero. All right, when we come back, three big things. We start with the Milwaukee Fire and Police Commission and a directive to Chief Ed Flynn that, in my opinion, is long overdue. The question becomes, what will the mayor do about it? What will Ed Flynn do about it? We'll discuss. Stick around. It's 842. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 846, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Roger Waters brings his Us and Them tour to the BMO Harris-Bradley Center on Saturday, July 29th. And we're giving you a chance to win a pair of tickets all this week. Not right now, but sometime. Be listening to my show between 8.30 and noon today and every day this week. And you could be enjoying the music of Roger Waters featuring songs from Pink Floyd right here with 620 WTMJ. Yeah, we'll be giving away a pair of tickets to see Roger Waters sometime between now and noon. All right. Big thing number one, the Milwaukee Fire and Police Commission says, enough is enough. 
At this same meeting where they took up proposed changes to the police department's policy on immigration late, late last week, they also decided to say enough is enough with regard to the police chief's policy with regard to chases. Let's review the bidding here quickly. Back in 2010, Ed Flynn implemented a policy which essentially says you only chase fleeing cars if you have reason to believe that the occupants of the vehicle have been involved in committing a, a violent crime. So, I mean, if you got evidence, for example, that, that you think there's suspected murderers in the car, you chase it. But if it's a stolen car, you don't chase. If it's a car that's driving 70, 80, 90 miles an hour and they pull away, you, you don't chase. You need to have, essentially, evidence believing that if the crime, the car has been involved in some sort of violent crime. If you get a report saying, hey, this car was involved in a bank robbery, you chase. But otherwise, you don't. And it's been well documented. What has happened is, whether it's the drug dealers or the reckless drivers or whatever, that word has gotten out. And people now routinely run from the police. It's the latest cottage industry. You have teenagers particularly driving stolen cars, and they know that if they drive away, the cops will not follow them. You've seen this with just reckless driving as well. People driving 70, 80, 90 miles an hour, you can go by a police officer, and the police officers nowadays, in many cases, don't even, in my opinion, bother to try to pull people over because they, they know that they're not going to be allowed to chase. And what happens, a lot of times you find that car a couple miles down the road, wrapped around a telephone pole and people are dead, or the car drives 80 miles an hour through an intersection and hits and kills someone, or... It's a stolen car. You find that abandoned, and then the people are out doing other carjackings or whatever later. Now, I do not believe that you chase a car automatically every time somebody flees. You have to use common sense. You're not going to engage in a 90-mile-an-hour chase down Wisconsin Avenue at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. But the problem is the word has gotten out about Ed Flynn's policy, and the bad guys, from teenagers to adult criminals, Know that the cops won't follow them. The police, I'm here to tell you, are incredibly frustrated by this. And that's why you see the statistics. I mean, thousands and thousands of people just drive off because they know they're not going to be caught. The Milwaukee Fire and Police Commission ended up saying enough is enough. They have now issued a directive to Ed Flynn saying that you have to comply. And if you don't comply, you could be disciplined, demoted, you could even be fired. The directive, first of all, says that the chief is supposed to create a high-value target list of vehicles used in rolling drug houses. Now, that's one of the things that you see. You, know, you don't have the stationary drug houses anymore. You have cars, you have people that deal drugs out of the cars, and they know that if they flee, they can get away. Um, he's also supposed to compile a list of vehicles that have fled from the police at least twice. Officers are allowed to chase vehicles on that list. Even more importantly... Officers, in my opinion, are allowed to chase fleeing vehicles when the officers have probable cause to believe that the vehicle is engaged in excessively reckless driving. So you put on the bubble lights, the car takes off, it's going 95 miles an hour, it's weaving in and out of traffic, it rolls through a red light. You can chase. You don't have to chase. And obviously you're not going to chase in every situation. But now the word will go out that you can't just run from the cops with impunity. Ed Flynn has dug in his heels 
over the last few years, as he typically does on issues, he says, well, I, I know my policy is right. I, I base it on essentially my my intuition <laughs> and, you know, um, my, my intuition and things, my personal experience, research, evidence-based findings, and the dangers posed to the community. Well, all right, Fire and Police Commission says you've got to change your policy. Now, the mayor can override this directive. Assuming the mayor does not override this directive, Flynn then has to put this into place or risk being disciplined. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This directive, in my opinion, is completely and totally appropriate. Matter of fact, I think if I were in charge, I might even go farther. But this idea that you just have to sit by idly and watch cars driving 80, 90, 100 miles an hour go past you, the bad guys waving at you, at the police, that is absurd. This policy should never have been put into place, but it certainly should have been changed a number of years ago. 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's start with Dave downtown. Dave, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Yeah, I mean, it's not like the old days, you know, where, like, maybe a kid peels a steering column, gets in the car. I mean, these are used in commissions of crime. Right. These are, you know, these people are carjacked. Right. There's no, there's no, there's not even a sense of driving in a response. I'm not, I'm not saying that, okay, when people use the car, you know, whatever, they, they steal a car, they're just maybe, okay, the police might be there. Okay, we've got to watch out. No, I mean, these, they'll drive 80, 90 miles right. down the street. I mean, they're more dangerous than... Yeah, and these aren't just, right, these aren't harmless joy rides now, and the word has gone out, and people now know that if you run from the Milwaukee police, they won't chase. So all that has done is it's inspired more and more people to just run from the cops and drive recklessly, and it's putting all our lives in danger, Dave, and it just is. Oh, no, it, it, it's a, it, to me, it's almost like a gang. I mean, I've seen, and now, it sounds weird, I live in downtown Milwaukee, I am so apathetic towards any type of vehicle crash right now. I don't, it's, you know, I'm numb to it. I mean, I see cars flipped over. I see cars hitting houses. I see cars in buildings. I see cars hitting other cars upside down. To me, it's just normal, everyday. You know, when you when you see an accident, like, oh wow, now it's just like I'm numb to it. Well, right, right. and then you, thanks for the call. You you wonder, all right, what what was it happened here? Was this just you know somebody not paying attention, or was this again the the seventeen? And look, we all know the pattern. And, and there, there's adults that are doing the rolling drug houses. That's an issue. But it's also, it's these, it's teenagers who decide, hey, it's going to be fun. Let's go steal the cars. Let's see how fast we can drive. Let's put people's lives in jeopardy. Again, I want to be real clear here. This directive doesn't require the police to chase every time. Nobody would argue that the police should chase every time. You have to consider the facts and circumstances. You don't want to put the officers in danger. You don't want to put uh, civilians in danger. But the, the, what's going on on the streets puts people in danger every day because of the recklessness and the complete and total disregard that people have for these various laws. Now, I understand that the other the other step in this, and, and one of the points that Flynn has made that I am somewhat sympathetic to, is he says, well, we chase these people, um, you know, we put officers' lives in danger, even if we catch them, we turn them over to the court system, and then you've got the Milwaukee County catch and release system, where you simply say, oh, we've got a 17-year-old or a 15-year-old that's been involved in 20-some car uh, thefts and driving recklessly, here, we're just going to 
put him, you know, we'll, we'll put an ankle bracelet on him. I understand that frustration, and the police chief does have a point to an extent, but that's not what this is all about. You start with the idea saying the cops have to do everything they can to catch the people that are endangering all our lives. Then we'll take it that next step and wonder why judges, you know, aren't doing what they need to do. Bob downtown. Bob, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Morning, Jeff. How are you? Good. What do you think? Is uh, this policy good? Yeah, I think it is a good policy, and I think it's about time that the Fire and Police Commission took these steps and took an action. But as part of that, I'll point out, this is the same Fire and Police Commission that about a year ago renewed his contract without taking any public comment, without having any hearings, yep. basically in a backdoor move, said, yep, Ed Flynn's great, we'll keep him. So they deserve some of the blame themselves. But Ed Flynn's policy has been a disaster. Objectively, he can say anecdotal or evidence-based, right. yada, yada, it's Based on personal experience. My personal right. experience. Okay, well, <laughs> maybe well, you should get out and watch these cars, Ed. You know. Right. The, the personal experience of the rest of the people in the city of Milwaukee and surrounding suburbs is that you see way more car accidents, way more car fatalities, and you have to, it, police officers trust them as professionals with appropriate training to exercise appropriate discretion to make decisions. As you said, you're not going to go 95 miles an hour down Wisconsin Avenue and rush hour, right. but in certain circumstances on Capitol Drive at, at 3 in the morning when yeah. someone just blew through three stop signs and is a danger, then maybe you need to chase them and arrest them. A- absolutely. No, th- thanks for, see, I, I agree with you completely. You want to give the officers the discretion to do this. Now, look, I, I th- this is common sense. I, you know, Ed Flynn has this tendency that sometimes you see in people in law enforcement for a long time to just believe that there's nothing they do that, that is wrong. I mean, you that, that they, for example, you know, he sits at this community meeting the other day, a couple of weeks ago, and says that he believes the reason you have violent crime in Milwaukee is because of concealed carry. It was one of the stupidest things I have ever heard somebody in a position of responsibility say. Then when he's challenged on, he says, well, I, I you, you know I'm, I'm not legally allowed to provide the numbers. Well, they just don't exist. So this this is my personal experience type of thing. I mean, I, I hope Flynn, first of all, the, the key is, is is Tom Barrett, is he going to back the Fire and Police Commission? Because he can override this directive. I think it would be disastrous for the mayor to do that. Then the question is going to be, will Flynn comply? And if he decides to buck the Fire and Police Commission, what's going to happen? To me, the question is, who's right and who's wrong? And in this particular case, mark the tape, the Fire and Police Commission is absolutely correct. It's 857. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. There have been presidents who have been, we're in the middle of our three big things. Big story number two, Trump's, President Trump's approval rating is the lowest of any president since 1975. That would be Gerald Ford. Um, the, in my opinion, okay, gotta, for those of you who might not have been around at the time, um, Richard Nixon resigned the presidency in the face of impeachment proceedings. He was going to be impeached. He was going to be tossed out of office. He resigned the presidency. Gerald Ford took over for him. On September 6th of 1974, um, Gerald Ford 
pretty much doomed any election effort he had by issuing a pardon to Richard Nixon. It was a full and unconditional pardon for any crimes he might have committed against the United States while president. This pretty much ended any efforts to try to prosecute um, Richard Nixon for in his involvement in the Watergate scandal. Gerald Ford did it because he thought it was important for the country to move on. And I actually think he made the right decision. But it was an extremely unpopular move. There's no question in my mind that if he had not done that, he would have probably beaten Jimmy Carter for election when he ran to be elected in his own right in 1976. But the fact that he had pardoned Nixon, I think, pretty much tainted uh, his presidency, and I think it led to his defeat. In any event, after Ford made the decision to pardon Nixon, his popularity rating plummeted. Um, in 1975, February of 1975, um, President Ford's approval rating was 39%. He had been in office for uh, um, over six months. 39%. That was, that was the low for somebody who'd been in office for that period of time. Donald Trump They've done, you know, they're out the Washington Post, ABC News, does a poll essentially over the last few days, and it turns out that at least according to their poll results, only 36% of Americans approve of Trump's job performance. That is a 6% slide since his administration hit the 100-day mark in April. Um, his disapproval rating hit 58%. That is an increase of 5 percentage points. But again, um, you, you've got to... You've got to go back to 1975 to find numbers that are anywhere close to this. It is a stunningly low number. Now, for his part, over the weekend, President Trump decides to address this once again with a, a series of tweets. I mean, he takes to Twitter and he essentially says, my approval rating, 40%. Not bad. Well, he, he rounds up, but he says, my approval rating is 40%, you know, not bad. And then he goes on to point out how polls have been consistently incorrect and essentially says, you know, don't, don't believe this. These polls are, are always, you know, wrong. All right. 36% is the approval rating. There's one story after another based on this saying the Trump administration is in tatters that the first six months have been a disaster, that there haven't been any legislative achievements um, beyond the appointment of the justice to the state to the United States Supreme Court, and that essentially it, it's got nowhere to go but down from here. I was reading a story this morning suggesting that the Trump presidency is on life support. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Here's the aspect of this that I want to discuss with you. And and candidly, I think, once again, President Trump Trump's tweet saying, oh, don't believe this 36%, and, you know, it's, it's, it's not really that, that bad, and the, the, don't believe the polls, they don't know what they're talking about. Again, I, I think, I guess I'm not necessarily surprised that he would say something like that, but I, I think it's somewhat, again, divorced from reality. But assuming, you know, whether his approval rating is 36% or 34% or 38%, clearly you're way, way, way underwater. Can the Trump 
presidency, I guess there's two related issues I would like to discuss with you. Um, is the Trump presidency really that unpopular? And if so, what needs to happen to salvage it? 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Do you believe these polls in the first place? And if so, I mean, is the Trump presidency in danger? Can it be salvaged? I have some theories that I will share with you, but I'm curious as to where you come down on this as well. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 914, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 916, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. United Airlines has come up with a new way of compensating passengers who give up their seats. Have they hit on a winning formula? Get the details and reaction with Scafidi and Billstat, 1235 today on 620 WTMJ. All right, new Washington Post-ABC poll showing Donald Trump's approval rating after six months in office um, is at 36%. You have to go back to Gerald Ford in 1975 to find an approval rating that low. Actually, Ford's approval rating was 39%, but he was in the tank after he decided to pardon Richard Nixon. For his part, President Trump responds by saying, ABC Washington Post poll, even though almost 40%, well, it's actually 36%, is not bad at this time, was just about the most inaccurate poll around election time. Right? This raises two issues. First of all, was the poll, do you believe these poll numbers? And secondly, if so, can the Trump administration be salvaged? Um, my take on this, I mean, I think I understand that there's problems with polls. And, and I don't know if it's 36%, like I say, or 32% or 40%, but I have no doubt that President Trump is underwater right now with his public approval ratings. Having said that, lots of presidents have been in trouble early on in their administrations. Bill Clinton, Ronald Reagan, um, to name two, Jack Kennedy, John Kennedy, after the Bay of Pigs, his approval ratings were completely and totally in the dumpster, and they all managed to turn their presidencies around. I think Trump can do the same thing, but he's need, there's things he needs to do. Let's start with Bill in Brookfield. Bill, you're first. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Um, I actually do not believe these polls, um, because if we believe the polls, Trump wouldn't even be president right now, yep. because every poll handed it to Hillary, and polls, I think they are skewed. I think that the, the media uses those as a way to deter people from actually going out and voting and actually... Uh, uh, trying to, to get their candidate in. So I think the polls are wrong. Everybody I talk to, they love what Trump's doing, and they think the reason why more isn't getting accomplished is because the Democrats are blocking. They are blocking at every single turn. So you really think that if we were to just, you and I were to randomly go down the street, we were to pull 100 people off the street and put them in an auditorium and ask if they approve of the job the president is doing or not, you, you really think perhaps like a majority of people would say yes, that they approve? It depends on where you ask. If you yeah. ask Waukesha County, you're going to get a huge approval. You right. ask in Milwaukee, you may not get as much. So it depends right. on where they're asking, too. Right. But you have questions with the methodology. You just flat don't believe the polls anymore. No, I do not, especially after this election. Okay, well, thanks. Well, there's no question, and, and, and it's, it's not just this election. I mean, the, the polls have been, pollsters, for whatever reason, have been pretty consistently and staggeringly wrong about a lot of high-profile things going back several elections. And, I mean, I also, I mean, I, again, I, I take stuff with a grain of salt. 
If the approval rating, though, were 47 or 48 percent and a disapproval rating of 53 percent, I might be inclined to say, okay, maybe this is skewed a little bit. When when you get approval ratings in the mid-30s, though, that... I, I think it's kind of like sticking your head in the sand to kind of say, all right, that, that, there's, that there's not a problem there. To me, the larger point, though, is, is where do you end up going with here? I am not surprised that Trump's approval ratings are, are as low as they are. And, I, again, I tend to believe that this is generally an accurate sort of reflection. I'm not surprised by it. I mean, but because there's a lot of stuff going on. First of all, it is true that the mainstream media has focused pretty much exclusively on the failures of the Trump administration over and over and over again. That is the underlying drumbeat of this. Secondly, there has not been really a major legislative accomplishment. We haven't had an infrastructure bill. We haven't had tax reform. We haven't had health care. And everything that's being discussed with regard to that is always presented in the most negative light possible. I mean, as we've talked about repeatedly, in the history of America, of of this country, once the government has established an entitlement program, and um, of course Obamacare is an entitlement program, we've never gone back. You know, we've never rescinded that entitlement program, and that's why efforts to try to rein in a program that is just absolutely cratering are met with this: oh, you're going to end up killing people, or people are going to be uninsured. So there has been relentlessly bad press. But at the same time, there's no legislative accomplishments for the president to point to. And I think that that's, that is, you know, hurting him quite a bit. Uh, let's see. Dan says, I initially thought on our text line, I initially thought the deep state theme might have been overstated. I now, deep state being um, people in government out there to try to, embedded in government out there to try to undermine the, the Trump presidency. I initially thought the deep state, the, deep state theme might have been overstated. I now believe that there is a substantial part of the bureaucracy, the media, and elective politicians that want him to fail and actively seek to sabotage him. I, I by the way, agree with that. Despite his flaws, I think it increases his support among his diehard supporters. Well, that's, that's true. I mean, and it's just like our first caller was saying, that there are people who just absolutely completely and totally you know are are with the trump agenda and think that everything is is something that's undermining i have i think irritated everybody by trying to take what i consider to be the common sense and the the middle ground you know the folks who are uh, we we hate trump we hate trump we hate trump that's almost a crazed sort of thing and i believe that there's going to be a backlash for that at the same time i think you also have to recognize that legislatively we're spinning our wheels and for everybody who wants to vent about and complain about the media's obsession with things, and this whole Russian story, to me, again, it is way, way, way overplayed. If Russia tried to meddle in our elections, which I think they did, you need to figure out how they did it. You need to figure out ways we can stop them from doing it in the future. But this idea that, oh, this is going to be the way that we're going to end the Trump presidency, I just... To, to me, that's blowing this way out of proportion, and I don't think that you're going to see anything that's going to come of that. I know it's going to disappoint people, and I know every time I say that, I get flooded by emails with people saying, you just don't understand. This is it. This is the smoking gun, or this is the smoking gun. But I also appreciate that you know the confusing explanations that the Trump administration gives for various things, including you know the meeting Donald Trump had, Jr. had with this Russian lawyer. Now it turns out other people were there. Instead of making this a one-day story, 
the way they've handled these things ends up making it a two or a three or a four-day story and just churning more and more and more. So I think in some cases the president has been his absolute own worst enemy by the way he has chosen to handle some of this negative coverage. That being said, I'm not prepared to give up on the Trump presidency. Kevin in Fond du Lac. Kevin, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Morning, Jeff. Um, I don't necessarily dispute that what the numbers are, but what I dispute is how relevant they are because I don't think people are going to, uh, they're at 36%. I think when people get in that voting booth, they're voting more Republican or they're voting Democrat. Mm-hmm. So if his numbers are that low, I don't think it matters so much. Um, the other thing I want to say is I wish people would stop complaining about uh, Republicans being objectionists or obstructionists, excuse yeah. me, uh, because they did the same thing to Obama, and I'm by no means an Obama bear fan, but we just need to move on and, and get Trump to do his thing, and, and I don't think the polls are relevant. Well, right, and again, it, it, it's, it's early on in the presidency. Um, you know, people look at legislative initiatives, and, and to me, ultimately, the Trump administration is going to be judged on what you have accomplished. What is, the, how is the economy doing a year from now, three years from now? You know, are, are we at war? Um, well, those are the types of things. I, I would like to see more accomplishments. And, and candidly, I, I think that as long as, as far as the big picture type of stuff, we haven't done anywhere as near as much stuff. And that's, I mean, I think that's a challenge. But don't, don't you think, too, though, that we're seeing kind of the fundamental difference between Democrats and Republicans? And that with Obamacare, Democrats just went along with what's best for the party, where you get these Republicans who are more responsive to their constituents, and that's why you're getting this rip. And legislation isn't getting done because you have moderates and you have extreme conservatives. Right. No, I think you're exactly right. And, I mean, thanks to call. And, again, it's one thing to install a massive entitlement program. It's another thing to unwind it, which has not been done. Again, it's not done in America. So you've got all these different constituencies, and the Republicans are trying to get health care reform right. Now, I'm not smart enough to know exactly what that answer is up and down the board, but they're trying to get it right. And I do think it's interesting that you don't necessarily have people in lockstep like you had the Democrats, where, I mean, every single Democrat voted for Obamacare. Um, The Republicans are asking some tough questions about, you know, what is this going to do? But I think it's time to get stuff done. Matter of fact, to to that end, Wednesday morning, we're going to be talking with uh, Paul Ryan, kind of under the radar, There is a lot of stuff that Congress has been doing and is going to continue to do that doesn't get attention because the headlines are Russia, 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 Russia. Well, all right, we're going to go behind that um, with some stories with Paul Ryan. He's going to join me um, Wednesday morning, I think we're scheduled. It's 927. This is Jeff Wagner. Big thing number three coming up. Stick around. It's 928, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Foxconn executives could decide in the next two weeks whether Wisconsin will land up to 10,000 jobs. One of the people likely to be at the negotiating table is Racine's new mayor. He joined John McCure at 520 during Wisconsin's afternoon news. I was telling Jane Metnair the story, and she just described it as, well, this is the fun mom. <laughs> All right, this, this is this is the story. I swear, I do not make this up. All right, last Wednesday, woman in Oregon. Gets arrested. Springfield, Oregon. Here's what she decided to do. She, she takes a red wagon, like, like one of those radio flyer wagons, and then she takes like a, a strap, you know, one of those things that you like hook to your bumper, for example, if you want to keep your trunk open or something like that. 
She puts one part of the strap on her, her SUV. She ties the other end of the strap around the red wagon. Okay? All right? And then she takes, I swear I'm not making the story up, she takes her three- and her five-year-old kids. She puts them in the wagon. She then starts driving them around a roundabout in her neighborhood at, at about five miles an hour. Now, there's cars entering the roundabout, and she'll, like, wave the cars past, but she's driving them around in the roundabout. Now, you might say, is alcohol involved? Uh, and and you, would, you would think the answer would be yes, because who in their right mind would decide to tow your children in a wagon through the roundabout? But actually, alcohol is not involved. She's towing. A number of people call the police. The cops respond. She's like, what is the big deal? I'm trying to show my kids a good time. I mean, I, you know, we, you know, the, the carnival's not in town now. We, we couldn't take them and put them on the tilt-a-whirl. I decided to pull them in this red wagon around the roundabout. She has now been charged with recklessly endangering safety. Drivers reported that the woman was waving vehicles to go around her as she drove in circles in the roundabout, and the traffic began to back up. One driver reported nearly hitting the wagon. Police logs show several drivers stopped their cars and confronted the mother. Um, she eventually stopped, put the wagon in Inside the Taurus, it was a Taurus, and allegedly told one driver to be an adult about it. Um, <laughs> I don't know. The kids have now been taken by social services. And no, once again, alcohol isn't involved. And as my friend Jay Matinair says, hey, she's the fun mom. I know what we're going to do. <laughs> Here, let's, let's put the kids in the wagon and tow them through the roundabout. Um, go figure. It's 9.36, Jeff Wagner, 6.20 WTMJ, so very glad to have you with us. How has Skyward become one of the best-rated places to work in Wisconsin? Their CEO joins the Newwalkie team to give the answer. It's all part of the Intersection of People and Place podcast up now at WTMJ.com and on the WTMJ mobile app. Hey, while you're there checking that out, you can download this uh, show. We podcast every so- show, so you can check it out. I know lots of people do that, and I very much appreciate it. All right, big story number three. I, I just, It feels to me like summer is, is slipping away. For some reason, I, I always feel like the 4th of July is the unofficial midpoint in summer. And I, I understand that if you look at the calendar, that's not quite the case. But just for me, it's always been historically after the 4th of July, the daylight hours are starting to get just a little bit shorter. And then you're starting to have more and more things come up. And you're starting to think more and more about the back to school type of things. And um, if you have if you have a kid right now, there's already back to school sales that are going on. And it's kind of like Man, I, I don't want to see Halloween decorations in, in July, and I don't want to see Christmas stuff out in, in September. But that's what's going on, and now more and more parents are starting to think about the back-to-school stuff. At the Milwaukee Public School System, MPS, going to be a little bit different this fall, because starting with this fall's class, there is now a uniform policy. Now, they've had some schools have had uniform policies over the years. But for the first time this fall, with the exception of a handful of schools, um, there's now a uniform policy. Um, They've got over 150 schools, and all but seven are now covered by this uniform policy that's in existence. Um, The school board says that the the basic school uniform will be either khaki-style pants a skirt or jumper in tan, navy, blue, or black. 
The uniforms will also include a navy blue or black long sleeve or short sleeve shirt with a collar, such as a polo shirt, a dress shirt, or a turtleneck. So in other words, again, no no ripped blue jeans, no T-shirts, nothing like that. And that is the school policy that they're implementing. The reason this is the news that the Journal Sentinel was saying about how there was a apparently a, a uniform fair that was held over the weekend where people could go and, uh, and, and purchase these different uniforms that were there. The colors might vary from school to school. Each school is allowed to have its own unique colors. So, for example, the, the districts, I think, colors are... Um, black or blue, but an individual school might say, hey, our school colors are red, so that's the, the polo shirts or the dress shirts are going to be red or whatever. Um, typically, you could, for example, if you're outfitting a, a boy, let's say for the sake of argument, um, you know, they're saying that you can buy a pair of khaki pants and a polo shirt for about 18 bucks. Um, the idea behind these school uniforms is let's avoid crimes of passion, of, of fashion, crimes of fashion. Let's avoid crimes of fashion. Let's standardize this. Let's not be distracting. There are some parents or some kids who are saying, well, we want to be able to express ourselves. Um, the interesting thing about this policy, though, is that parents are allowed to opt out. Opt out. Families may choose not to have their children wear uniforms by filling out a form in the school office. Now, my guess is that very, very few families are going to choose to do that. And more importantly, I think it would be an extremely bad idea for families to do that. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This is going to be the first school year where the, the overall policy at MPS is school uniforms for all kids. I think that's going to be good. I think it's going to lead to a lot less distractions. I think it might lead to fewer instances of violence um, where people are trying to rob kids for other types of clothing. In general, I think this is a good thing, and I think parents or families who choose to opt out would be making a huge mistake. 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Will school uniforms be a good thing? And I understand that many of you who have sent your kids to private schools or parochial schools, you're, you're used to this whole school uniform concept. I think it works, and I'm glad to see them doing it. Will this work at MPS, um, or are we unduly restricting the pre-expression of of the kids? 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We're back with your calls in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 941. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. I say bring on the school uniforms. There's plenty of times and opportunities that people have to express themselves in their clothing during the school day is not necessarily one of them. 941, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. What do you think? It's 944, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. A couple people texting in. You know, Jeff, summer starts July 21st. How, how can it be half over on July 4th? I, I understand what the calendar says. I'm just thinking that around here, it just kind of feels like summer starts, you know, early June and then by the time early September rolls around, it's pretty much over. I know what the calendar says. I'm just going with that intuition. But back to school, a lot of people are already starting to make plans. I mean, kids are going to be back to school, well, within, you know, five, well, I guess, you know, five or six weeks from now, maybe six weeks from now. 
um, people are starting to make the back-to-school plans. When they go back to MPS this fall, there is a uniform policy that's going to be in place. Now, families can opt out, but otherwise, um, you got to wear particular clothing. I think it's going to be a great idea. I think it's going to work. Kathy in Milwaukee. Kathy, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. What do you think? I think it's a, a fantastic idea. I, um, I actually worked for the public school system. Um, I'm a grandma now, but my children went to a private school, and it it just helps out so much. It even helps out um, a relationship between the parents and the children. You don't have to argue oh. about what what they're wearing in the morning. It's just it's a I, fantastic idea. It, see, I would think that this is so parent friendly. I mean, how many parents have had that problem where you know the the son or daughter comes down in the morning and they're dressed in an outfit, and then it's like you're not going to school dressed like that. Oh, but mom, don't you understand? Everybody dresses this way. This takes a lot of that out of the whole equation. You would think. Yeah. Yes, it does, and I think it's just a fantastic idea. And there's no. I mean, when when I was working, um, there were. Um, instances where the, the school principal actually, um, she brought, she brought a jump rope. Right. And she would tie it around the kid's waist because their pants weren't, um, up where they should be. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah it, exactly. It's like, okay, you're, you're walking around with your pants around your hips. Here, just just pull them up. Make sure they fit. What What is so unusual about that? No, thanks for the call, Kathy. Now, there there is, here's part of the problem. And, you know, um, somebody, one of our text lines is making that point. Um, the issue is it's not enforceable. Even if you don't opt out, there's really no consequences for no non-compliance, so it's useless. At our school, about 40% plan to opt out. That is, that's the, the hole in this that you can drive a Mack truck through because families can opt out. So now why, I for the life of me don't understand why 40% of families would choose to opt out. I mean, this is, I just see this as being no real downside. If I was on the school board, I would not allow an opt-out procedure. Maybe you have some procedure if there's religious objections or something like that or you know, public safety or health reasons, and I don't know what they would be to the uniform. But it is a problem that you allow these opt-out procedures. Now, I do think there might be an occasion with peer pressure, which is if like 80 or 90% of the kids are wearing those uniforms, the kids whose families decided to opt out they might ultimately say, well, you know, we, we just look different than everybody else. Maybe it's going to work. So that's what I think is going to perhaps be tweaked moving forward. Do you, you know, do away with the opt-out procedure and just say, okay, look, this is the rule. So unless you've got a religious concern, unless there's some health concern that I can't imagine, you, you've got to wear this because the opt-out thing is is a huge exception. But as far as the concept goes, I don't have a problem. Let's see on our text line. I am a public school teacher in a neighboring state. We do not have a uniform policy, but I would love it. So many issues would be non-starters if we had it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's that's kind of what the key is. I mean, you think about a lot of these problems. Again, it is the crimes of fashion that occur, or it's just the distractions. And, and parents don't want to deal with this. And Lord knows the teachers in the classrooms have enough issues that they are facing without having to argue about, 
oh, okay, you know, does this fit into whatever the dress code is? And is that an, is that skirt of an inappropriate length? Is the saying on the kid's T-shirt appropriate or inappropriate? Richie in Milwaukee texts us, I believe it's a great idea for schools that have uniforms, but what I don't like is giving the parents options to opt out. And the reason is you're going to have some kids say something to their parents and fill out a form so they can still, in his case, wear the baggy pants half off their rear ends. Um, I don't think it's a good idea, so they need to stop that option, which is, I, I think, you know, that's, that is a legitimate thing. This is the first year that this is being put into place. I think you want to reassess it to decide, are too many parents opting out? If you're going to have a uniform policy, have a uniform policy, except for the exceptions we have. But I think this is well worth it. I mean, I think it takes another issue and a distraction off the table and lets the teachers concentrate on doing what their job should be, which is you know, teaching kids how to read and write and add. It's 9.50. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 9.53, Jeff Wagner, 6.20, WTMJ. There are whispers that Netflix might be facing a decline after riding so high for so many years. Why is that, and will it happen? Find out during Scafidi and Billstat, 2.07 this afternoon. Sometime, well, actually, we're going to do it during the 10 o'clock hour. I'm going to be giving away another pair of tickets to see Roger Waters at the BMO Harris-Bradley Center. Uh, Roger Waters, of course, of Pink Floyd fame. On Saturday, July 29th, sometime between 10 and 11 o'clock, I'm going to give you a chance to win a pair of tickets. We'll be giving away a pair of tickets each day this week. All right, it's kind of an interesting... This shows the effect of headlines, um, and it's sort of an interesting comparison between the same story that appears in the print edition of the Journal Sentinel this morning versus the story that appears in the online edition. Now, we have talked on this program before about prevailing wage and the prevailing wage law, which is going to be repealed by the Republican legislature. The prevailing wage law, the way they calculate prevailing wage, is they ask contractors in various counties to answer a survey once a year saying, how much do you pay your employees for this, that, or the other? Um, The response rate is only about 10%. But based on those 10% of the contractors who respond, the prevailing wage law, which goes back to the 1930s, then says for government, for state-sponsored contracts, you will set a, a floor. You'll figure out what the prevailing wage is for a particular job. And then you'll set that wage. Maybe it's $45 an hour for this particular service. And then everybody who bids on this particular job has to agree that they're going to pay per people doing this at least $45. That's the prevailing wage law. As I have argued, this makes no sense for so many different reasons. First of all, the way they calculate it is just crazy. I mean, there's no reliability. This fluctuates dramatically from county to county and from year to year based on which of the 10% of the contractors submit it. Secondly, though, I mean, I appreciate that I appreciate that you want to find value. And as I define value, it's the best possible price in connection with the most possible experience. That doesn't mean low bidding or anything like this. We talked about it last week, for example. Somebody called up who said, hey, I, I'm involved in prevailing wage. We bid these jobs, and we, I know people work in these jobs. When, when they get a private job, like they're doing something for you at your house, the employees are paid $27 an hour. 
when they do a government job, the same work, but it's a government job, they get $50 an hour because of this silly prevailing wage law. It grossly, grossly, grossly overinflates the cost of public projects. And the Republicans are about ready to repeal this. All right, so there's two stories. The Journal Sentinel has written about this, and there's two stories. One in today's paper. Um, The headline, and it's the same story. It's by Jason Stein, who's one of the Madison reporters. The headline in the story that appears in the paper, Road Bill Targets Prevailing Wage. GOP Measure Aims to Lower Highway Costs. Okay, and I think that's that's a fair description. Road bill targets prevailing wage. It does. It targets the prevailing wage law. GOP measure aims to lower highway costs. That is true as well. That is the idea behind this. They want to lower the project costs, saying that, all right, if in the private sector you would pay somebody $27 an hour to do the job, why in the public sector would we pay the same person $50 an hour? That is nothing short of a ripoff of the taxpayers. And that's the way the headline appears. I think it is fair. I think it is accurate. Road bill targets prevailing wage. GOP measure aims to lower highway costs. All right. If you look this story up online, it is the same identical story. But the headline is, Bill would repeal minimum pay for Wisconsin road workers and allow single firm to design build highways. Bill would repeal minimum pay for Wisconsin road workers and allow single firm to design build highways. Well, I, I guess technically this is what in the old movie Absence of Malice they would describe as, as accurate but not necessarily true. Yes, I guess technically it would repeal the prevailing wage, which would repeal minimum pay, sort of, kind of, for Wisconsin road workers and allow single firm to design built highways. It is the difference between a headline, in this case, the one that appears online, charged, oh my gosh, those evil Republicans, they're repealing minimum pay for Wisconsin road workers, versus the one that appears, again, in the hard copy edition of the Journal Sentinel, which I think is much more accurate. It's targeting prevailing wage in an effort to try to reduce costs. But you can see how you can shape the way, it's the same story, but you phrase the headline one way, oh my gosh, they're going after minimum pay for workers. You frame the headline the other way, we're repealing prevailing wage, trying to save taxpayer costs, and you give a completely different idea about the same story. And that's one of the things that you always, I, I think a lot of times people obsess about you know, media bias in the text of stories. I've, I've always said it's much more pronounced in the way headlines are written because the truth of the matter is most people don't really read stories. They read the headlines and then they move on. And this is the same story, two different headlines, both of which are arguably accurate, but they convey a completely and totally different meaning kind of interesting. All right, coming up in just a couple minutes, should you be able to buy so-called junk insurance if you want? The war on dreamers, and is it time? Well, a guy gets in trouble for stopping a shoplifter. That is all coming up in the next hour of the program. It's 9.59. This is Jeff Wagner.
1010 OH, Wagner, 620 WTMJ. All right. Um, there is all sorts of consternation about reforming Obamacare, repeal and replace what you end up doing. One of the things that I think still a lot of people haven't come to grips with is the notion that Obamacare is cratering. It, whatever it was designed to do when it was first implemented, it is not working in the real world. What is happening is insurers are dropping out of the program. They can't make enough money to stay in business. And so what started out is you have these exchanges that are set up, and maybe it was one where there was two or three or four different options that people had. Now in many areas of the country, they're down to one option. And in some areas of the country, they're they're down to nothing. And it's a significant question, okay, what's going to happen next year when you have nobody in half a state that's offering plans? In addition, what's happened a lot of times, and this is happening here, is some of the plans that are being offered, because there's not, there's not enough choices, they very much limit the health network that you can have in. So, for example, I get my health insurance through um, you know, my employer, and we have various health networks to choose from. I can choose whatever Columbia St. Mary's is now, Ascension. Is that what they call it now? You could choose Freighter. You could choose Aurora. And you could decide, hey, this is, you know, I, I, I want to be in the Freighter system. I want to be in the Aurora system, whatever. For, for many of the people who are in the Obamacare exchanges, even if you have an insurer that is offering a plan, there, there's not that choice. Okay, there's, you know, you, you've got to be in X, Y, or Z. But you don't have... You, if you like your doctor, you can't keep your doctor. You know, if you like your you know health coverage, you can't keep it. They're very, very limited. These are problems, and there are problems that are only going to get worse. So we're wrestling with the idea of how we fix it. One of the things that is in this Senate bill, and we were talking right before the break about how you can try to influence things with headlines. Um, New York Times has a piece called, In a Clash Over Health Bill, A Growing Fear of Junk Insurance. That's the term, junk insurance. Right now, under Obamacare, there are all sorts of specifications of what sorts of coverage insurers have to offer. You know, they're, they're, you don't have a choice. So let's say, for example, that you... Um, you would never need birth control. Birth control coverage is an issue. You, you don't, or, or you would never need maternity care. I'm not going to need maternity care. Okay, that's just the reality. You can't not get that coverage. Before Obamacare, you used to be able to sit down with an insurance agent, and you used to be able to say, "Okay, this is this is what I want. This is the type of insurance that I need." And then you could carve out a plan, and then you would pay for the different types of things that you wanted. You could also say, okay, um, I'm willing, for example, I'm willing to handle out-of-pocket expenses up to a a certain point. I want to protect myself for the catastrophic loss. Right? I want to protect myself if I get a situation where myself or you know, a member of my family is diagnosed with some really, really horrible disease, and we're going to be looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars or more in medical expenses. That's what I want the protection for. But you know what? I'm willing to, I'm willing to pay higher deductibles. I'm willing to pay higher out-of-pockets in order to keep my premium lower, but I want the protection for, uh, again, the catastrophic types of things. 
um, after Obamacare, it essentially became a one-size-fits-all, where everybody has to essentially take the same sort of thing. One of the things that they are doing, or considering doing in the Senate bill, would be to say, insurers would have to offer a plan that offers all the stuff that Obamacare does, that covers all this stuff. But insurers, as long as they offer this plan that has everything, insurers would also be able to offer other plans that allow people to pick and choose. Now, I understand automobile insurance is different than health insurance, but think about, you know, think about your car insurance. You know, when you go and you select you know, car insurance, you have all sorts of different things that you want. Do I want collision coverage? You know, in case I I wrap my car against the tree, do I want to buy collision coverage? Do I want to, how big a deductible? Am I willing to pay $2,000 out of pocket or $1,000 out of pocket? You know, how, how much out of pocket am I willing to pay? You pick the different types of things you want. How much of an uninsured motorist policy do I want to have? What are the liability limits? You're able to pick and choose. And again, I understand that auto insurance is a little bit different than, than health insurance, but you pick and choose these different types of things. The Senate bill would allow people to, again, buy a policy that is tailored to their needs. And if you look and you say, okay, I don't need, um, I, I, I mean, I, I don't care about paying for routine doctor visits, okay? Um, I, I, that doesn't matter to me. I, I'm willing, I'd rather have a lower premium um, than to pay for that. I'm willing to pay for that out of pocket. I don't need, you know, whatever, the maternity care coverage. I don't need the birth control coverage. I don't need the mental illness coverage. Whatever that might be, I, I don't want to pay for it, so let me buy a less expensive plan. That is an element of the Senate bill, and of course the way the New York Times writes it, in clash over health bill, a growing fear of junk insurance. The idea being if insurers can send and sell plans that offer less than the full Obamacare thing, that this would be junk insurance. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I don't know about this concept of, of junk insurance. What I do know is there's a lot of people, particularly people who don't qualify for much, if any, government subsidy, who look at the Obamacare plans and say, we don't need all this type of stuff. We're paying so much on a monthly basis for the premiums and with the deductibles we have, with all that type of stuff, we're never going to use it. It's cheaper for us just to take our risk. Is there really anything wrong with allowing people, if you want to say, look, I, I, just, I can handle my own medical expenses. I don't care about the small expenses. I am willing to handle this type of stuff out of, pro, out of pocket. I just want to be protected in case I get, again, that catastrophic type of situation. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. To me, allowing individual choice should be a key element. Offer the Obamacare the full boat, but allow other people to make those decisions. Is this really junk insurance? 414-799-1620. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1016. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1018, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Yeah, be prepared. 
once the Senate starts debating this repeal and replace Obamacare, new health insurance bill, this is the new buzz term that you're going to be hearing, junk insurance. What does junk insurance mean? Well, it means that people could pick and choose what type of insurance they want and only have to pay for the things that they want or need. It also means that individuals could, um, again, go to insurers and they would try to figure out, all right, what, what really makes sense. Um, the arguments by the health insurance industry that want as much money as possible, they're saying, well, you know, healthier, younger people would most likely gravitate towards cheaper policies um, because they don't need the more comprehensive and expensive coverage. To which I would say, well, okay, what's the problem with that? I mean, what's the problem with that if you're young and you're in good health and you're not going to be... You're in all likelihood, you know, not going to be seeing the doctor for a lot of those kind of aches and pains and medications and stuff that people who are older need. What's wrong with allowing that person to say, okay, we're going to have coverage, but it's going to deal with the catastrophic type of coverage. So you're going to be protected in the event you get that awful diagnosis and you're going to need the big stuff. What's wrong with individual choices that are out there? Um, you know, it's interesting that the Senator Jeff Flake out of Arizona, you know, he says that he thinks that if you do something like the Senate's talking about, there's about almost 200,000 people in his state who can't afford insurance because it's too expensive. They could now buy a product that meets their needs. The, the, the truth of the matter is, unless we are going to go to either to national health insurance, that where the, we just all pay an enormous amount of our income, into providing for, you know, care for everybody. And I don't really think that there's too many people that believe that that's a good idea. Do we really want the British health care system? Do you really, you know, if you've got a kidney stone, um, do you really want to wait four or five or six months before somebody's going to be able to look at it and treat it? Um, I, I just, I don't think many people really want to go that way. Do we really want to go to a single-payer system where the estimates are it's going to cost just an enormous amount of dollars, like billions of dollars, to try to implement that? I don't think most people want to do that. If we're not going to do that, this is the other option, which is, again, allowing people to decide what sort of things that they want to get and what sort of things that they are willing to pay for. Unless you do this, um, it's going to be, you know, a huge problem. Uh, let's see, Mitch writes, junk insurance, think of it. After every other type of insurance other than Obamacare, auto, home, boat, detail, pet, you can design your policy based on your coverage needs and risk. Nothing junk about it. It's just smart insurance. Um, you know, Absolutely. I mean, that's that's the whole idea that, you know, you can decide what you need. You put individual choice in place. And, yes, I understand that that means that some people are going to end up having to pay more if you want the full boat and you want lower deductibles and you want less copay and you want coverage every time that you end up going to the doctor. I understand that, that you're going to have to pay a little bit more for that. But if people want less, why shouldn't they have the choice to do it? Just saying. Beware the term junk insurance. It's 1022. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1024. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. That's Roger Waters. He is bringing 
his Us and Them tour to the BMO Harris Bradley Center on Saturday, July 29th. And we're giving you a chance to win a pair of tickets all this week. Be listening to my program, and you could be enjoying the music of Roger Waters featuring the songs of Pink Floyd. We'll give away a pair of tickets each day. And this is the time today. Caller number 16, 414-799-1620. Caller number 16, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, wins a pair of tickets to see uh, Roger Waters, his Us and Them tour. It's the BMO Harris Bradley Center. It's coming up. It's Saturday, July 29th. Um, caller 16 to our number. and uh, go see. I was going to say go see Roger Waters on me. It's actually go see Roger Waters courtesy of WTMJ. It's sort of the royal we. Um, all right. Headline, Wisconsin lawmaker admits he stole sign in Capitol Rotunda calling GOP gropers. Kind of an interesting, this is the Associated Press. Um, uh, Dale Kuyenga, who is, I think that's how you pronounce it. I, I know I always butcher his name and I feel bad because he actually, while I disagree with him on some of his ideas, he's at least somebody that's out there promoting the idea that we need to change tax policy in Wisconsin. Anyhow, um, he's from Brookfield. He apparently released a police report. According, Here's apparently what happened. An 80-year-old guy, um, May 23rd, uh, complained to Capitol Police that his sign was missing from the Capitol Rotunda, claiming it was worth $40. Surveillance video showed the representative walking off with it. So the Capitol Police go into effect, and they say, hey, you know, what happened to this guy's sign that he put up there? The sign was, in the words of the representative, very critical of President Trump, U.S. House Speaker Paul Ryan, Governor Scott Walker, and the GOP in general, the report says. Kuyenga said the telephone interview, um, he said with an interview with AP, the sign called all the Republicans gropers and said, damn all Republicans. So the representative said, um, you know, he said that he thought the sign was offensive. you got kids that are coming into the Capitol. Um, he thought it was offensive to have the words groper and damn with children in there. So he apparently you know, took it down. Uh, he, he decided to take it down. Um, he told the investigators that he planned to tie, turn the sign over to the State Department of Administration, which oversees the Capitol building and police officers. He wasn't aware that the sign was permitted. The detective said, I told the representative about the seriousness of taking others' property. Huh. And uh, the representative said it would never be an issue in the future. They apparently then had the sign, which they turned over to the 80-year-old guy that put it up. Now, I think this story is interesting for a couple reasons. First of all, I, I do agree that state assembly people, state senators, public officials should not be taking it upon themselves to take down signs that are put up in, in the Capitol. I, I just, that's not your job, and I understand why that is critical, at, why you shouldn't do that. At the same time, it's tough for me to get too terribly bent out of shape about this story. And the real question to me is, you know, is every crazy Republican-hating nutbag that comes in the Capitol from Madison or wherever, are they allowed to put up signs in, in the Capitol? I mean, here, I mean, the Representative Kuyenga has a point. All right, you, you've got this sign that's up there, and it's not just a normal protest sign. It calls the Republicans 
gropers. It says, you know, uh, damn all Republicans. I mean, do we have absolutely no standards in the state capitol anymore? I mean, is this what it's come to? Well, you know, we, people have free speech rights. Well, I understand that people have free speech rights. But just because you have free speech rights doesn't mean that you can express anything you want anytime you want. So I understand why reasonable people would find it offensive. Should the state representative have taken upon himself to exercise self-help and take down the sign worth $40? Give me a break. But no, he, he shouldn't have. Okay, he shouldn't have taken it down. But again, the larger question, I understand it is the People's Republic of Madison, and I understand that you've got Dane County Circuit Court judges who probably embrace the theory that's expressed on this. And I'm also a guy who makes his living under the umbrella of the First Amendment. But at the same time, there is this kind of interesting question about can you really, you know, can you say pretty much anything you want? Does that mean it's, it's permitted? Um, he shouldn't have taken it down. No argument, no question about it. To me, though, it's appropriate for the Capitol Police to remind him that you shouldn't be doing this, and taking other people's property is a serious type of thing, and, and yes, it is, but it's not like he stole somebody's car. He took down an admittedly offensive sign that, in my opinion, shouldn't have been allowed in the state Capitol in the first place. Period. That's, to me, the larger issue. Can you put anything you want up on the walls of the state capitol expressing your outrage? Can you call anybody you want a, a groper and damn all Republicans? I mean, seriously? That's that's now the standard that's out there because, well, it's the state capitol? I, you know, don't we have any decorum anymore? I guess not. It's 1034, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. United Airlines has come up with a new way of compensating passengers who give up their seats. Have they hit on a winning formula? Get the details and reaction with Scafidi and Bill Stat at 1235 today on 620 WTMJ. I meant to mention earlier, my regular producer, Hondo, he's off today and tomorrow. He's on jury duty. Like like they're going to put Hondo on a jury between, I can just imagine, you're in Milwaukee County and you go down and you say, well, what do you do for a living? Well, I, I work at WTMJ. Oh, what do you do? I work for Jeff Wagner or with Jeff Wagner. Oh, that's great. And then his father-in-law is a prominent Milwaukee attorney as well. So he's, I, I hope he gets on a jury, actually. I hope he gets on a jury, but I, I think the chances are slim to none of that. So when you call up today and tomorrow... Um, one of our newer producers, well, he's been here for a couple months, but this is the first time on this show. Um, we, we call him the Big Dog, or BD for short. So, BD, Big Dog, will be answering the phone. So, welcome to the program, BD. Just say, hey, BD, you know, so, or you could use the full title, Big Dog, but, it, you know, BD is, is going to be appropriate. All right. Interesting story. I've been waiting all weekend to talk to you about it. I mean, here's the deal. The guy, the guy works at a Home Depot store um 70 year old guy he's a, a veteran he's an army veteran works at the home depot depot store somewhere in texas here's what he says happens a couple weeks back he says you know he he's he's working at the store he notices three guys carrying tool sets worth thousands of dollars to the checkout area at home depot he says, look, I looked over, and they just it seemed a little hinky. They seemed nervous. I was watching them. So they're getting to the checkout area. So they've got thousands of dollars in tool sets. And then all of a sudden, one of them screams, let's go. And they all grabbed these tool kits, and they started running for the door. They're bum-rushing the door with thousands of dollars of merchandise that they're stealing. Guy, and his, he's 70 years old. His name is Jim Tinney. He says... 
hey, without thinking, he grabs a paint roller extension that he was holding, and he ran to stop one of the men. I just automatically went like this, and I threw the stick at the guy's feet. So he was trying to trip up these guys who were, you know, bum-rushing the door, stealing thousands of dollars' worth of merchandise in front of him. Um, Ultimately, the thieves ended up getting away. Okay, so that's it. They've stolen the money. They've stolen the toolkits. Not going to catch them again. Home Depot is ripped off, and so the rest of us are going to pay more and higher prices as a result of the shoplifting. But the guys got away. So he said, okay, I, I didn't think anything of it. I didn't catch them. It was unfortunate. He said, didn't think anything about it at all. He gets whistled in two weeks later, and he's told, you're fired. He says, well, what do you mean I'm, I'm fired? He says, well, you're, you're fired because you tried to stop the shoplifters. And he says, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I tried to stop the shoplifters. They were stealing thousands of dollars worth of your stuff right in front of me. Yeah. He said, you know, I, I mean, this is, I just, I just kind of reacted. Um, I, I think I was doing the right thing. Home Depot, when this becomes public, says in a statement, we have a strict policy that only our trained security personnel should pursue and engage shoplifters. We've had deaths and serious injuries over the years, and no amount of merchandise is more important than the safety of our associates and customers. So they said, um, he's gone. we're, We're firing you. He says, look, I mean, this was really no harm, no foul. They could have written me up. They could have reprimanded me. But they fired me for trying to... I don't know, stop people from stealing thousands of dollars from their store. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Home Depot has this policy, and of course, as we often talk about, rules are rules. He was not a security personnel. He was just the guy, you know, working the aisle. But the crime was committed in front of him, and he just reacted. Should they have fired him? 414-799-1620, 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Does he deserve to be canned? Feel free to disagree with me about this, because I understand that there is the policy, and I understand that the policy is in place, but you know what? This guy was trying to do the right thing, and at least in my opinion, there is no reason at all for them to have taken the nuclear option and to have fired him. I agree with him. You want to reprimand him. You want to remind him if there's a history of this. But he was trying to do the right thing. And I guess I just don't think there's enough people in this world nowadays who do the right thing. So you fire the guy for this. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Um, Should they have fired him for doing this? Now, I agree. It's against policy. But in this case, he didn't get hurt. Nobody else got hurt. The bad guys got away with thousands of dollars worth of stuff. Um... The only victim right now appears to be the man who was working at the Home Depot. All right, let's start with Mike on the northwest side. Mike, you're first. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Jeff. Uh, I think that uh, this gentleman should be uh, plotted as the seller employee of Home Depot and not uh, uh, not fired. Uh, well, I worked in retail years ago, and years ago you could you know chase uh, uh, people or shoplifting or whatever, right. and you wouldn't get afraid of getting shot or whatever, but nowadays it's different. Right. 
and uh, well, I guess I, I, see, I understand why they have the policy. I mean, I, I get oh, the I policy. I, I understand it too. And he violated the policy, but I guess I'm, I come, I'm coming back to the idea that you're terminating him for this. He was trying to help out the store, you know, and and, and he, he's and he's the only one. They didn't catch the shoplifters. The Home Depot's out thousands of dollars. He's the only guy that's being punished. There seems to be something fundamentally wrong about that. There absolutely is something really weird with that, and uh, I agree with you. Thanks for the call. Appreciate it. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Uh, Dan texts us, I have a strict policy that I don't shop at stores run by morons. <laughs> well, I'm, okay, I, again, I, I don't, I, I mean, I understand. The, the policy is bad things can happen. You know, you, you can start to chase a shoplifter. They pull out a gun, they start shooting, you have deaths, and it's just stuff. So I, I get why they have the policy in place. And I guess I really don't necessarily have an issue with the policy. The, the individual store can decide on that particular thing, or you know, the employee gets hurt. The employee starts chasing the person, they trip, they fall. Next thing you know, you're looking at a lawsuit against Home Depot, or they run into somebody else. I mean, I, I get it. There's all sorts of reasons, and this is why you know we live in a society that, that's heavily lawyered but having said all that to fire this guy for this that's what i think goes too far okay we continue the conversation in just a minute if you're on the line please hold on it's 1042 jeff wagner 620 wtmj it's 1045 jeff wagner 620 wtmj so home depot says we've got this policy Unless you're a trained security person, even if you witness shoplifting in front of you, you're supposed to let people go. And they say we've had two instances in the last week where at different ends of the country, shoplifters have pulled out guns, which kind of makes you wonder how safe it is to go to Home Depot, but that's a whole other story. So anyhow, that 70-year-old guy is an Army veteran. He's working at Home Depot. He watches three people I mean, just in front of him stealing thousands of dollars worth of tools. They walk up to the register, and all of a sudden they yell, let's go, and they start to bum-rush the door. He's got a paint roller extension in his hand. He throws it at one of them, starts to chase him, tries to trip him. The guys get away. Okay, fine. They've gotten away. Bad guys are in the wind. You're probably never going to catch them. They've got thousands of dollars of stuff. But but there is punishment that's coming out. No, it's not punishment against the guy against the crooks. It's punishment against the guy who tried to stop them. He's fired. Home Depot says we have a strict policy where employees are not supposed to pursue or engage shoplifters. He violated. He's fired. All right. He violated the policy. I understand. But they fired him. Really? Mary Jo in Brookfield. Mary Jo, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hey, how are you? Hey, I'd like to know what they would have done if he would have been involved in catching them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, in other words, if he had caught one of them and saved the store a couple thousand dollars for the toolkits, yeah. what what do they end up doing would then? He, do they still he fire have him? Fired then. And if he is listening, I commend him and I and I appreciate him. Yeah, I mean, thanks. I mean, hopefully, thanks to Call Mary Joe. Hopefully, you know, somebody else will pick this guy up. Now, again, I understand rules are rules, and I don't. I don't think this is necessarily the most ridiculous rule that's out there. And I'm getting a couple people on our text line. Um, for example, uh, Deb writes, Sorry, Jeff, but people in your, cho- in your chosen profession, actually I'm a recovering lawyer, but people in your chosen profession probably are the cause of stuff like this. Lawsuit happened. Yes, I, I understand clearly that this is driven by liability because they're concerned that 
all right, what happens if somebody does, in fact, pull a gun and start shooting people and customers and other employees? And, and there's a reason for the policy. I, I get it. And so that's why, you know, he violated the policy. There, there's no question about it. But his point is, why don't you whistle me and nothing bad happened as a result of this? All right, I was wrong. I just reacted. Write me up. Warn me. Reprimand me. Okay, I, I can move on. But instead, they decided to fire him. Leroy on the north side, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hey, this is Leroy. Yes, sir. That man should be promoted. He should be the one watching the cameras. That's what should happen. Yeah. Other idiots didn't catch it. Well, well, yeah. I mean, I guess, I mean, these stores, this idea that, well, there's insurance and there's all this type of stuff. I mean, I, you know, at some point in time, don't you like to reward people for doing what most of us would call the right thing? Exactly. I mean, think about it. There's somebody in the security room watching the cameras. They didn't catch it. But he had the eye to see right. what they were doing. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And then to try to intervene. Now, thanks to call. And again, I, I I get their I get that their policy is you shouldn't react. His story is, hey, I'm I'm an army veteran. We were trained to react. I was trying to do the right thing. Now he he acknowledged he was told not to do it. So can't get around that. He violated the particular policy. But to me, this is the equivalent of firing him is like taking somebody who's I don't know, overstayed their time at the parking meter by about 10 minutes and treating it like you got drunk and ran down a bunch of people in the cross-section. Judy writes, Jeff, I agree with you. It seems like being politically correct has made great citizens who want to help you not want to do anything anymore because of ridiculous rules such as this one. I'm sick of paying more because the store doesn't want to stop people from stealing from their store. No wonder things like this, no wonder thugs like this keep doing what they are doing. Yeah, I mean, this, this is actually... This is like a red flag because it clearly says, all right, if you're looking for a place to steal, um, you know, who, and again, Target, a pair of Target, I'm sorry, Home Depot, apparently allows, like, their trained security people to chase. And I, again, I understand why they have that policy. My big beef is the fact that you fired this guy for that. Carlos in Sheboygan, you're in 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning, sir. What do you think? Uh, I think they did the right thing because safety is first, and I believe he put another people's lives in, uh, you know, in risk. Mm-hmm. What about if the guys were loaded and turned around and started shooting yep. people? Right. He shouldn't. I, I agree with you in that their policy is that he shouldn't have chased them. I guess my question is, he didn't hurt anybody. The guys got away. Nobody got hurt. Would you fire him for doing this? Putting people's and uh, lives at risk is uh, enough. To, to fire him. So you would because fire put, you would fire him just for violating another, the policy. Yeah, he puts another people in at risk, not himself probably, but you know, another people that was you know his coworkers. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, how much it would have cost him if the guys already shoot one of the employees? I I I guess I I mean, and I understand, Carlos. Thanks for call. I understand all that, and that's Home Depot's position. Home Depot's position is the guy that that this could have escalated we would just rather allow people to steal large amounts of money or items from us we'd allow them to steal and get away than we would have people be engaged now i mean that's an interesting sort of policy which clearly again makes you wonder whether it's open season at the particular stores when it comes to shoplifters but like i say that's another issue he did potentially put people's lives at risk, but but nothing bad happened. That That's not what the result of this was. Could bad stuff have happened? Absolutely. It, it could have, which is why, and plus, I mean, you've got the policy. I mean, there, even if you think it's a stupid policy, I mean, the employers have a right to have these policies. 
But I guess I can't get over the fact that even if you agree with the policy, and even if you agree that he violated it, don't you just tell him, all right, please don't do this again. And if he does it again, okay, then you got a different story. Just saying. It's 1052. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1054. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 69 degrees outside. Uh, it's going to be a really nice day today. Is this the year the Packers break through again and win a Super Bowl title? You bet. The state of the Packers entering this month's training camp is the topic of Wayne Larrabee's chat with ESPN's Rob Domofsky. Listen now in Wayne's podcast, the play-by-play on the 620 WTMJ mobile app and WTMJ.com. And when you're at our mobile app page, download my podcasts. Lots of people do that. Appreciate it. All right, this is a story. This is one of these examples where I don't think anybody is necessarily right uh, one of the first controversies the Trump administration found itself embroiled in was the, this, this temporary travel ban. And I think everybody knows the history by now. What they did is they issued an executive order saying we are going to temporarily suspend people, immigration from, uh, I think at the original thing, it was seven different countries, and, and because of concerns about the way those countries, and in some cases the governments are nothing more than like regimes, because of concerns about the way they vet people who are coming in. So we're going to establish guidelines. And so we're going to put a 90-day hold on people immigrating from these different countries. The Trump administration did it in a sort of ham, in more than a little ham-handed way, and they didn't consider, at least initially, what do you do about people who've already been approved to enter the country through green cards or things like that. Um, it ended up getting in litigation. They issued a revised travel ban. You have a couple different circuit courts. The Ninth Circuit, which is arguably the most liberal um, circuit court in the country on the West Coast, and the Fourth Circuit on the East Coast, which is a very liberal court as well, they both ruled that this was unconstitutional. The Supreme Court of the United States is going to hear the case in October, but but they stayed, put a stay, that is a hold, on the rulings of these appellate courts allowing the Trump administration to implement a temporary travel ban while the case is being heard. They, they did say, however, that you know, the president and this order could you know, ban uh, essentially anybody but a close family member from coming into the country. So if, if you have, I, I don't know, if, if it's your father or you're in this country and you're, it's your father or mother who wants to come in, father and mother could come in. But the Trump administration adopted this policy. They said, okay, close family members, all right, doesn't apply to grandparents, aunts, or uncles, as well as a wider class of refugees. So some of the we-don't-like-this-ban crowd ran to a very, very liberal federal judge in Hawaii who said, I, I agree. They, they shouldn't be able to ban grandparents, etc. So he, again, blocked this interpretation of the order. Now, I, the way I look at this is like nobody is right. First of all, the, the Trump administration, candidly, I, don't, I consider grandparents to be close family members. I, I just do. I think, can I see a show of hands, you know, grandparents out there? Um, in many cases, you've got grandparents that are more involved, say, in raising their grandchildren than, than the parents might be. And so, I mean, if it were me, if I were the king, I would say, okay, grandparents would qualify as close family members. Now, the reason the Trump administration chose to exclude grandparents is that that is consistent 
with um, the way close family relationships are defined in other portions of federal immigration law. So I think they're on solid legal ground, even though as a practical matter, I think most of us would think that grandparents are close family members. But here's the larger issue. Um, The whole question is whether this federal judge even has the authority to try to interpret Supreme Court rulings in this context. And that's one of the things the Trump administration is saying. They're saying, look, if, if somebody wanted to object to our interpretation of what the Supreme Court has said, you can't go back down to the district court. You've got to address it with the Supreme Court. This is what we say the Supreme Court means, and if you don't like what we're doing, then bring it up to the Supreme Court, not some federal judge appointed by Barack Obama who clearly doesn't like what we are trying to do and has ruled against us in the past. Um, Again, I think the Trump administration has a really good point here. I don't know how this whole thing is going to be resolved. And like I say, common sense would seem to indicate to me that, you know, grandparents should be a close family relationship. But that being said, I don't think the judge had the jurisdiction in the first place. And this is, again, going to be another distraction because this is going to be in the court system as well. It is 1059. This is Jeff Wagner. When we come back, we're talking about, speaking about the Trump administration, we're going to be talking about dreamers. We're going to be talking about walleye fishing. It's going to be interesting, believe it or not, walleye fishing. And um, are parents responsible for a kid playing in a car? It's an interesting story. I'll tell you all about it. It's all coming up. It's 1059. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Our immigration policy in this country is just a mess. And and I just I think that there needs to be an element of common sense in, in dealing with this. And I'm going to try to share my thoughts about the, the common sense approach. First of all, first of all, if people are in this country illegally and they are caught committing criminal acts, they need to be sent back. I I firmly believe that. And if they come in after being deported, then they need to be put in prison and then deported again. That You cannot allow that to happen. Secondly, I believe we need to aggressively enforce our borders. I don't know that there's any civilized country in the world that has open borders. They'll put aside you know, what they do in Europe with the European Union, but where people come in illegally and just get to stay. That makes no sense to me. Additionally, Focusing locally. I think it is absurd that, for example, we would tell Milwaukee police officers that when you come into contact with people and you're conducting investigations, you you don't, and you have reason to believe that they may be in the country illegally, that you don't do some follow-up to determine whether that is the case or not. To me, that's just absolutely crazy. You, You have these laws that are in place, and you should end up, you know, having to at least ask questions about them. Then there is the other question, though, about, you know, what do you do? Right now, the estimates are about 11 million people in this country illegally. What do you do with the people that are in the country illegally? And in particular, what do you do with a special class of person carved out by the Obama administration, a a dreamer? Now, the Obama administration tried to get immigration reform done, couldn't get it done. So it issued an executive order that says that under certain circumstances, some people can stay in the country. 
the law right now is being challenged. And um, I think a lot of the smart money says that the law, this rule that Obama, I said it's the law, it's not actually a law, that's the problem. It's a rule that Obama put into place. It's being challenged, and I think it's going to get tossed out, not for the merits of the rule, but rather because Obama didn't have the authority to implement the rule in the first place. But but here's here's what a dreamer is. And they estimate of the 11 million people that are in this country illegally, there's about 800,000 people who qualify. They had to have been under the age of 31 as of June 2012. They had to have come to the United States before reaching their 16th birthday. They had to have continuously resided in the U.S. since June of 2007 up to the present time. Had to have been physically present in the United States on June 15, 2012. Um, had to have entered without inspection before 2012. Are currently in school, have graduated, or obtained a certificate of completion from high school, um, have a GED, or are honorably discharged as a veteran of the Coast Guard or Armed Forces, and have not been convicted of a felony, significant misdemeanor, etc., etc., and do not pose a threat to national security or public safety. So what this is geared at is people who came into this country essentially as teenagers or younger, who've been in this country, who aren't causing problems in the country right now, that they, they could stay and have been in the country continuously. And the idea being, you know, some people coming in as kids, they didn't have the choice whether they were going to enter legally or illegally. Mom and dad say, hey, we're heading to the United States. So mom and dad and the kids come in. The kids have been here for a while, a long while, and they're not causing problems. They are productive citizens, but they're here illegally. The Obama rule would say they can stay. Now, again, I think the courts are going to ultimately say Obama doesn't have the didn't have the authority to issue this order. All right? Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. Assuming the courts do agree with me and say all right, you can now start deporting these people though. The question becomes should you do it? Given all the problems that we have with immigration, the issue is should the Trump administration aggressively start going after this one class of people who are here illegally, people who came in under these circumstances, who are part of this whole dreamers program, do we really benefit by trying to deport them? Or should we be concentrating on other people, people who don't qualify under this program, people who are you know, committing crimes, all those types of things? 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think ultimately the courts are going to say you have the right to deport these people. But if I were the king, and I understand the argument what part of illegal don't you understand, I also believe that you have to figure out where you're going to best spend your resources. And honestly, somebody who's come into this country at the age of 12, brought in by their parents, who's gotten you know a high school degree, who's not creating problems, who's not committing crimes, I think that should be extremely, extremely low priority. 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, assuming you get the go-ahead from the courts, which I believe that they're going to, should we aggressively be deporting people who have qualified under this for dreamer status? My answer would be 
there's much bigger fish to fry, and that's where we should be concentrating our resources. What do you think? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1115. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1117, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. All right, Barack Obama issued an executive order with regard to dreamers. And essentially, the, the order says, if you, were com- if you were brought into this country illegally by your parents before you were the age of 16, and you've resided in this country continuously since then, and you've got a high school degree or a work permit, and you're not causing trouble, and you haven't committed crimes, you can, you can sign up and you can stay. Now, there's a, court, there's a series of court cases going on. My guess is the courts are going to overturn this rule, not on the merits, but simply based on the fact that they're going to find that the president, former president, didn't have authority to do this. All right, then that raises the question, all right, let's say this order gets tossed out. Does the Trump administration, do we want to be spending resources going after this particular group of illegal aliens and trying to toss them out? And my answer is... Much bigger fish to fry when it comes with dealing our immigration, the immigration thing. And my general sense is people who came into this country with their parents at 12, who haven't committed a crime, who've got a high school degree, that's not where we should be concentrating our resources. 414-799-1620 is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Jessica in Milwaukee. Jessica, good morning. Good morning. Um, I, I completely agree with where you're at in regards to it being very low on um, the needs level of putting our resources there. Um, I'm a teacher in the Milwaukee area. I've taught these students. Um, I'm teaching these students. I will be teaching these students. Um, And they're like every other kid. They're good. They're naughty. They're sassy. Mm -hmm. They're fantastic people. They're, they're, They're kids with aspirations. Um, but another thing that they have or don't have is a lot of the language and the culture that they would need in order to survive. Um, a lot of people think when they go to Mexico that Mexico is Cancun, white sand beaches and blue waters. What the reality is is that much of Mexico is impoverished mm-hmm. and does not have a lot of opportunities for kids. Um, there are people who would like to do things, but down in Mexico, the factory job is what they have to do, even if they're brilliant people. Okay. These kids are here for opportunities. Whether or not anybody agrees what their parents did was right or wrong, that's you know that's that's a moot point um, because these. Well, right, and the kids didn't have a choice. I mean, right. I mean, I guess that's one of the things I'm trying to imagine. Imagine a situation where you're eight or nine years old. Your parents decide, hey, we're, we're coming to this country illegally. So, okay, fine. It's not like you're going to say at the age of eight or nine, Mom, I'm not going. So, you know, you don't really, you, you've been here since you're eight or nine years old. You don't have ties back to, you know, whatever country you, you came from, whether it's Colombia or Mexico or whatever. Right. You're, you're just here. And I, I understand you're here illegally, but... I, I guess I'm just saying prioritize. There, there, if there's 800,000 dreamers, there, there's about like 10 million other people here who are here illegally that I'd be concentrating on before I worry about the dreamers. And, <laughs> and I know that it's, you know, and it's a completely other subject, but of those 10 million people, there's a priority there as well because, you know, again, like I said, yeah. opportunities, and, and again, whether or not you agree how they got here, opportunities are not what one would believe they are um, right. back in, say, Mexico. Um, for a very, for a, for an opposite example, 
I brought my mother down to um, Mexico for the very first time. We have um, my in-laws family is down that way. Right. And we brought my mother down there for the very first time this year. She does not speak the language. She does not know the culture. And after three days, she broke down because of culture shock. Right. It's, it's terrifying because she's lived here her entire life and does only know this culture. So think of it that way. I mean, she's she is a white American and knows nothing else than this area. So those kids are the exact same people. Right. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. And look, this is a difficult situation. And I don't, when I talk about these things, I understand I get these emails from saying, oh, people, are, are you in favor of amnesty? No, no, I'm not. But I, I'm in favor of, of prioritizing stuff. And as I have said all along, as somebody who worked in the federal system for, for a long while, there's not enough immigration judges. There's not enough immigration lawyers to round up 11 million people. That's why I think you need to prioritize stuff. And, again, if I were the king, this would be a low-priority type of situation. Unless, because keep in mind, I mean, one of the conditions is to be a dreamer, you, you have to have not been convicted of a felony, a significant misdemeanor, or three or more misdemeanors, or don't pose a threat to national security or public safety. So if you've got somebody, um, you know, who, who is, he's, you know, he or she, you know, part of the street gang or whatever, well, okay, that's... That's a different sort of situation. Of course, if you've got somebody that fits like that, that's where I want to see our resources spent. Um, 414-799-1620 is the number. Danielle in McGuanago. Danielle, good morning. You're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. What do you think? Um, while I agree with you as far as prioritizing, do I think we should go after these dreamers? Mm-hmm. No. However, if these dreamers have the ambition and the drive to succeed where there are cultural barriers, like learning English and things like that, those are the best of the best. Why wouldn't you want them back in Mexico or wherever they came from to continue that drive in their own country to help overturn that poverty? Well, I guess the question would be, what, what is their own country? If, if you, what is their own country? I mean, if you, you know, you're six or seven years old, um, you're brought into this country by your parents I- I- illegally or legally, regardless, and now you're. You know, now you're 17 or 18 or 21 or whatever. Is your country really still Mexico or is it the United States if essentially everything you've known growing up is the U.S.? As far as that goes, for me personally, if I was illegally in Mexico and it doesn't matter how long I was there, yeah. they're going to put me in a Mexican prison. I mean, I'm there illegally. I You'll be deported. Be yep. Yep. Yeah. So I have to say that, yeah, you're going to have to get deported. Mm-hmm. I no, okay. Well, I guess, I, I mean, I was just responding. Thanks for the call, Daniel. I mean, I was just responding to your question about, you know, we, we, we want to send the dreamers back to their, their own country so they can help fix poverty and things like that. I, I'm just, I, I raised the question of, see, I'm concerned with the kids. I mean, and I, I understand, I'm not trying to be a bleeding heart about this. And again, I'm talking about priorities. If you were saying to me, Jeff, we have solved our illegal alien, immigration problem. And, you know, everybody who's in this country, or almost everybody who's in this country illegally is now gone, except for the 800,000 people who have registered as dreamers. Do you think we should now be concentrating on deporting them? Right? If, if that were the question, we would be having a different discussion than we're having this morning. My point is we, we haven't reached that point. You know, I, I would, again, given there is a reality 
that we're just not talking about stuff in the abstract. Given that there is reality and there are limits on resources, to me, dealing with immigration, illegal immigration, first of all, you've got to toughen the border stuff. You've got to keep people from coming into the country. When you catch people who've been deported multiple times, you have to have punishment, and that would be, again, you know, put them in jail, put them in prison before you deport them. Let's have some consequences. I would be concentrating on the folks who are in this country illegally who are committing crimes. Let's deal with that. Let's figure out what segment of the population that is. Let's concentrate on that. And then let's end up you know, moving forward from there because you just can't do anything. That's just the reality. It's 1125. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. All right, coming up. Minnesota does something that is extremely controversial. I'll tell you about it. And if you're a sportsman, I particularly want to hear, or a sportswoman, I particularly want to hear your thoughts. Stick around. It's 1125. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1128, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, so very glad to have you with us. After a brief homestand out of the All-Star break, the first-place Brewers head out on a 10-game, three-city road trip. First up, PNC Park and the Pittsburgh Pirates. Our game day coverage begins at 530 tonight, sponsored by your Milwaukee-area Honda dealers. I have to tell you, I think this road trip, um, we're going to know a lot about where this team stands when they come back from the road trip. After they come back, they will have played over 100 games. Right now, they're four and a half games ahead of the Chicago Cubs. Um, they lost the game over the weekend to the Cubs because the Cubs swept Baltimore, but the, the Brewers won two out of three. If the Brewers win two out of three of every series they play, they're going to be just absolutely fine. Again, our game day coverage begins 5.30 tonight, sponsored by your Milwaukee Honda dealers. I will definitely be listening. Okay, two Hollywood deaths over the weekend. First, BD, who's producing the show today, Big Dog, Martin Landau. Do you know who Martin Landau was? You do, yeah. Now, see, if you are a, but that's because you are a Renaissance guy. Martin Landau, perhaps, perhaps best known from, the thing that made him famous was um, he starred in the original TV show Mission Impossible with his wife Barbara Bain. Um, and he was one of the stars of that. He left after a couple years. But this isn't the Tom Cruise Mission Impossible. This was the TV show, you know, in, in the 60s. Um, he's probably best known. He played Bela Lugosi in the movie Ed Wood. But he was also a villain in North by Northwest and a couple other things as well. So um, Martin Landau, dead at the age of 90. And then uh, George Romero. Now, I am Colleen Boland. You a... Uh, you you a horror movie fan? No, I'm not. I know several people who are. I don't particularly like them. You don't? I um, don't. You ever I seen don't. Night of the Living Dead? Yes. The original black and white <laughs> Night of the Living mm-hmm. Dead? There, I, I'm not a big fan of horror movies, and I don't like the slasher movies or things no. like that. But I got to tell you, Night of the Living Dead, the original one that they made for like no money at all in Pittsburgh, um, black and white. The first ten minutes of that movie are about as creepy as any movie I have ever seen. It starts out it starts out with zombies attacking people in a graveyard and just goes from there. I mean it, it really is a classic and George Romero made a history of making kind of these low budgets but not cheesy movies. I mean he's the king of the zombie flick. There's no question. I'm um, in a really interesting guy who's consulted on all sorts of horror movies as well. Um he's seventy seven years old. He passed away over the weekend as well and I, I know if you like those if you like that type of movie, George Romero just really I, I think invented the genre and 
I, I know there's a million zombie movies out there nowadays. You, you go back, you watch Night of the Living Dead, and every single one of them, every single one of the modern zombie movies is derivative to that one. And it was all, um, it was the brainchild of George Romero, who passed away at the age of 77. Martin Landau passes away at the age of 89. To both of them, I say, sail on. <laughs> 1135, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay, so we chased off the new producer, Big Dog, now Scott Warrison. Scott Warris, who has more titles. So that's that's one of the, I mean, every time I turn around here, I, it, Scott, of course, used to be the morning, the producer for this segment. Every time I turn around, I'm getting an email on a different title. It's it's executive producer of, of the station, and then it's contributing producer for something, and then it's, okay, so what is, help me out, it's contributing producer on, on McCure Show, right? Right. And producer, so it's executive producer, then producer of Scafidi and Billstat, um, and then and then contributing producer to that. And then you've got this other job come basketball season and all these types of things. All right. It's just, and I'm sure with every with every title you get, more money comes flowing your way. Right. That's that's how we are here at Scripps. OK. Um, there is a story that caught my attention. This is, of course, the height of the summer season. And. In Wisconsin and in Minnesota, um, the tourism industry is huge. I mean, let, let's face it, um, the summer tourism industry in particular. Uh, I, summer, and I, I understand there's people who go up north for snowmobiling and skiing and things like that, but, but the big times in the tourism industry, deer hunting and, and summer. And there are all sorts of places, various lakes across Wisconsin and across Minnesota, where you, you have this entire cottage industry that based around tourism. Um, can I see a show of hands? People who, maybe you do this now, maybe you do it when you're a kid. You know, dad and mom, for a week in the summer, a week in July, you know, you pack up the family truckster and everybody goes up to lake whatever, and you hang out and you fish and you water ski and you fish and you swim and you just hang out at, at the lake. It, it is it is huge. Well, one of the one of the big attractions to the lakes all over the state is is fishing, and if you aren't allowed to catch fish, it becomes a huge issue. Now we talked about this last year when there were a couple lakes and the DNR was about ready to put in restrictions, which would only allow people to catch. I believe it was it was it was either walleye or perch. There were I think walleye. They they put art of, they put these low limits, and and people were just absolutely outraged about it. Particularly the people number one who travel to a lot of these these lakes, um, and also of course the people who run businesses on the various lakes because people come up to fish, and if you're going to fish but you can't keep anything or you can't keep any significant amount of fish, who wants to go? Now, in Wisconsin right now, there, there are variations on certain lakes, but as a general rule, walleye, which is one of the most popular fishes, fish around, um, there is, as a general rule, a limit of, of five walleye per lake. Now, there might be some lakes that have lower limits, but there's a, a limit of five walleye. And that has become somewhat controversial as well because, I mean, a lot of people, if you go up and you want to fish, you, you want to fish all day, and if you're limited to five walleye, good walleye or good eating, if you're limited to that, well, okay, it's, again, it's a driving force and maybe saying, hey, maybe it's not worth, you know, driving 150 miles to be able to fish. Minnesota has taken this one step further. One of the most popular 
tourist destinations in the, the state of Minnesota is, is a lake. It's about 100 miles north of the Twin Cities, and it's called Mill Locks, uh, is, is what they call it, Lake Mill Locks. And it, it's been, I mean, imagine some of the very most popular tourist destinations in the state. That's what, what this is. And apparently for years and years and years, it's been really good fishing. They are concerned that, okay, maybe the walleye population is not reproducing enough, um, whatever. So they have just implemented these policies, which essentially say for the, the height of the season, height of the walleye season, essentially almost all of July, July 27th, July 7th through the 27th, they're saying you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to fish for walleye. You're no catch and re- not even catch and release because they say if you catch them and you release them, their experience is that a lot of them don't survive. So not a bag limit of one or two, just no walleye fishing at all. And obviously the sportsmen are upset about this, and the people who run again all the tourist cabins and the hotels and the restaurants on this particular lake, they're upset as well. The DNR in Minnesota is saying, look, we're we're trying to preserve the species for the future, and we can't be concerned about some of these short-term needs. We need to be thinking about the big picture. All right, I want to open up the line, our line. It's 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Hey, I want to talk in, in sort of broader terms, because this story out of Minnesota is what caught my attention. Obviously, there is always a balance between wanting to preserve, in this case, you know, walleyes, which are, you know, great eating. People want to do it. There, there's, there's that balance with trying to make this sustainable and preserve them versus, okay, we've got a tourism industry that depends on people being able to fish and have fun. And if you put a limit of two or three fish, is it really going to attract people who are going to come up? Will you drive, you know, three, four, five hours and go out on a lake and fish if you're not allowed to take walleye or if you're only allowed to take a couple? Now, again, this was the dispute we were having in Wisconsin where they didn't fully eliminate it, but they only they put bag limits as low as two. Right, 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Will limits like this or limits on the type of fishing you can do I think this is going to absolutely and totally destroy the tourism industry um, at some of these lakes. And people are just irate about what they did in Minnesota. The DNR considered doing stuff like this in Wisconsin. If you have these very low limits on the type of fish you can take, are people going to travel? Are they going to continue to go out? Or are they just going to find other ways to spend their time? And I understand that there's other things you can do when you go to the lake. You can go out in the boat. You can row around. You can do all sorts of stuff. But if you limit their ability to take fish, isn't that going to just kill the tourism industry? And if they did that on the lake that you vacation on, would you continue to vacation there? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, if I'm one of the businesses on this lake, I understand why I'm absolutely outraged. Apparently the governor of Minnesota was there last weekend, and a bunch of irate sportsmen <laughs> that just followed him all around, kind of like chased him around because they're so upset with this ruling. All right, we discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1142. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. <laughs> 
Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. One, one of the big tourist lakes in Minnesota, they've, they haven't closed the lake, but they have declared it off-limits for walleye fishing, which is, of course, the big the, the big thing that people go up to fish for. Um, in Wisconsin, the bag limit is five. It's lower on some lakes. Um, some cases, it's low as two or three. And people are complaining it's just crippling the tourism industry. Let's talk to Steve in Dowsman. Steve, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hi, good morning. What do you think? I, just, I wanted to comment on the fishing uh, in Wisconsin and also in Minnesota. Uh, I'm familiar with Mille Lacs because I fish in Canada with a guy that lives on Mille Lacs. Okay. And uh, his position is that the whole thing was mismanaged, and that's why there's no fish in the lake, and they're trying to restore the population. Uh, the same thing could happen in Wisconsin. I mean, five a day is pretty liberal on some lakes, and assuming that uh, a lot of people fish them and keep them, ultimately fish don't uh, produce that quickly that they're going to be a population forever. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you have to have some management and, you know. So let's talk uh, about the flip side. If, and and I, I get everything you're saying, but okay. for all these all these lakes that have, you know, the, the hotels and the campgrounds and the restaurants and all that type of stuff. If you if you say, okay, no no walleye fishing, for example, for uh, during the height of the season, isn't that going to kill the tourist business up there? Well, I, I don't think they're saying that there will be no walleye fishing. I think they're trying to make an effort to manage the walleye population so there is a continuous supply of walleye so right. people can enjoy fishing there. Yeah, well, they're saying no walleye, no, none at all, not even catch and release. Um, now, what you do, how you avoid that, I don't know, you know, if you're fish, But, like, at, this, yeah. at the particular lake, they're saying no walleye fishing at all from July 7th through the 27th, kind of the highlight of the tourist thing. Yeah. And all these, all these businesses are saying, hey, this is killing us. Yeah, well, it has been even when they, I mean, they had their limit down to one, Jeff, right. uh, if you're referring to Malak. Yeah. And that, uh, a lot of resorts have had problems with that. There's no question about it. But the whole thing stems from mismanagement. In the first place, and, yeah. And, you know, not uh, protecting the fish population and growing it so that people can continue to enjoy fishing. Right. And, the, and the other issue is, especially with some of these lakes where you, you have the like the shared ownership with the um, with some of the Indian tribes who go out and spear, and I mean that's and take large amounts. I mean that's one of the factors too that I think has contributed uh, on at least to the shortages on some of the lakes. That is definitely an issue. Yeah. No, okay. Thank, thank, just no. as an aside, Jeff, let me say this: uh, fishing is popular for fishing enthusiasts because of the experience of catching fish. In Canada, it's almost all catch and release right there, and you're allowed a bag limit of two, and the fish population is enormous. I mean, we fish up there and almost never catch less than 100 walleyes a day in our boat, and they're all catch and release. None of them die, uh, and, you know, people are uh, very concerned about protecting the fish for the future. So, You know, it's interesting because at, at the lake in Minnesota that we're talking about, they don't even allow, now at least for this period, July 27th through the 27th, they're not even allowing catch and release. It's just um, because I think what, what they're saying is that a lot of the fish that are caught and released they end up they end up dying. They don't survive anyways, which I didn't realize. But that's that, that's yeah. what the part of the concern. But again, I don't know if, if you're fishing for something and you catch a walleye. How, you know, how, how do you not catch one of those fish? You know, in the first place. Well, that's the thing, and you know, I've never heard of catch and release being bad. I guess maybe some people think it is, but I've never seen a fish die if it's properly handled. I mean, if, if you leave them out of water and uh, 
don't take care of them when you catch them, you know, anything is going to die. Right. So it's just a matter of having a concerned fisherman that respects their right to fish and also respects the rights of other people to fish and, and the state to control the population. Would you vacation at a lake that had a rule like this? If, if you were going up there, you know, to you know rent a cottage or whatever, and this was the rule, would you try to find another place? No, well, if I was going to go walleye fishing, I'd go where there's walleyes and where I was allowed to fish them. Uh, you know, so it definitely has a negative impact uh, for this year, next year, maybe the following yeah. year until the population is restored. Yeah. And I wouldn't want to be in a re- I wouldn't want to be a resort owner because I know it's a problem. But yeah. it's, it's no, it's a reality. Right? No, I got it. No, thanks for calling, Steve. I appreciate it. Um, let's see on our text line. Uh, my family has a home on the Three Lakes chain of lakes. I fished there for 45 years. In the last 30 years, I caught one walleye, and that was a a fingerling about seven inches. In the early spring, when the walleye are slow and spooning, the Indian tribes are spearing hundreds of fish. That's why we have a diminishing population. Yeah, there is something to that. Nick in Rockford. Nick, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Yeah, the last guy kind of stole my thunder as well, but the the issue you're looking at is a natural resource issue versus an economic issue. Um, well, and the balance, and, and the balancing yeah. of the two, yeah. Because the DNR says, you know, if you guys keep fishing at the regular limits we have now, you know, you might lose money for a couple months now, but if you keep doing the, the way you're fishing now in two years, you're going to go completely out of business because there aren't going to be any walleyes. So it's, a, it's, you know, natural resources versus economics. You have to figure out which one you care more about now. Do you um, think, let me ask you the same question I asked her last caller, um, for some of these lakes that essentially have these very, very low limits, or, you know, you can take one, you can take two. Um, Is is that going to kill the tourism industry on those lakes? I mean, will people drive 300 miles knowing that they're only going to be able to take one or two fish? You look at at that particular instance where it says July 7th to the 27th, I think, yeah, I would just make sure that I plan my trip for before or after. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Well, right, right. Well, yeah, exactly. And as for the people that like didn't know about this and rented the cottages last year, they they might be finding some different place. Now, thank, I, I appreciate. It, look, it, it's no easy, it's no easy answer. And you need to have this balancing type of stuff. And I'm not sitting here encouraging people to you know eliminate a population, but at the same time. Tourism is very, very fragile. It's like so many things. It's like running a restaurant or running a bar. It can be you can have the most popular place one day, and then the dynamics change, stuff changes a little bit, and and it's completely different. Um, tourism is the same way. And when you look at whether it's Minnesota or you look at Wisconsin, and and you how dependent the economy of the state is on this tourist stuff, you wonder. Again, we talk about this with deer hunting sometimes, you know, some of the areas where there just isn't deer. And I've done these topics in November where people are saying, "Ah, I've been hunting in the same area for the last 25 years. We haven't seen a deer in the last 10 years. Well, it's tougher to keep going up. Uh, That's the same that's the same thing that applies to, I think, some of these other lakes, especially during the summer. How you manage it, that's the tough issue. Like I say, in Wisconsin, they were talking about lowering the bag limit on walleyes to two. That ended up not going where anywhere. Now it's, it's five as a general rule. It can be lower on some. Um, something to pay attention to. It's 1154.